This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we pick up after the moment of Jesus' death on the cross, looking at the preparations for his burial and the work of two unexpected characters who take, maybe for the first time, their own stand in honoring Jesus. I like it. I think we can dive right in. John John 19? Yes. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Man, straight to the text. Okay. Now it was the day of preparation, and I promised we would talk about this on this episode. Yeah, I'm anxious. I don't have any notes on this. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. I don't necessarily have notes, but just I, I'm curious about the day of preparation. Like that, I'm not sure we've talked about that before. We've talked about Passover clearly, but I don't know if we've talked about the day of preparation. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and there are a lot of different takes on stuff, and there's a ton of people that work very hard at trying to show how the nuances of this week are all wacky and off and they don't work. And here's this, here's Jesus is actually in the tomb for like three nights or, or whatever. Like there, there are so many weird wacky theories out there about what's going on here that I just don't think are warranted in the text. I think it's people taking the text probably a tad bit too literally, probably not in its original language, probably making some assumptions and being a little bit too picky about, context and nuance um but in my opinion before about the case for john being written in hebrew not as much of a strong case as we maybe have for matthew but we've talked about that yeah and i've avoided bringing that up at every time that i thought like because i've (laughs) thought it a lot in the last few episodes i'm like man this is another place where you could make that case this is another place but i don't really like the theory so i haven't been bringing it up probably to set my own mind at ease because i don't want to wrestle with it any more than i already have um but yeah i mean that could be at play here but the day of preparation is the day prior to passover it's the day so passover is going to be that evening the technical passover the as i understand the historical details this doesn't keep me up at night like i don't think it's all that difficult i I, I I have not really figured out why everybody's so worked up about the days and the details of making this week work and making the Gospels harmonize themselves. I think John does use language differently. I think he references the days a little differently, and there might be reasons why he does that textually. But generally speaking, just historically, contextually, the day of preparation is the day before Passover. It's the day you're getting ready for Passover. Passover on this year fell on that Passover was going to be Friday evening. You're going to eat that. You would have eaten that Passover Friday evening, but Friday evening is what in the Jewish world, Brent? That is the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Now, they don't do this today, but there seems to be plenty of evidence that suggested in the first century, Second Temple Judaism, you didn't want to be working and having a Seder and holding all that stuff on this. John's going to call it even later a special Sabbath. This is a holiday Sabbath. The holiday falls on the Sabbath. And so that makes it a, a an interesting special Sabbath. And so in that day, they bumped their Seder one night earlier. Now, the official Seder, the Levitical Seder, in other words, the sacrifice that has to be offered in the temple by the priests, that's still that doesn't change on the calendar. That's still the day it needs to be. But your family at home had the Seder the night before, and this is why the whole week works. Jesus celebrated the Seder on Thursday evening with his disciples. The next evening was actually Passover, so that Passover, the official sacrificial Passover lamb, the the Paschal sin offering in the temple would have been offered while he's dying on the cross. So he still dies as the Passover lamb, but also eats the Passover with his disciples the night prior. But then that means that that Sabbath is coming 
and they now have to get him in the tomb. Like all the details work. All the details work. He's eating on Thursday. He's sacrificed as the Passover sacrifice on Friday uh, before sundown. And then at sundown, the Passover actually begins, but they're not observing the Passover as far as a meal goes. So now he's in the tomb, which means he then rises on Sunday. And now he's... That 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 makes that makes him rise on first fruits. The the first Sunday following the Paschal Shabbat is always first fruits. So that makes him rise on first fruits. That that means he's in the tomb for about at least twenty six hours. That would be three Jewish days. And I know that in some references it's three days and three nights, but that's usually a reference to prophets, not a reference to his actual burial. That's a remez when it says three days and three three days and three nights. The three days he's in the tomb for three days. Any part of time of any day, one hour on one day, all of Saturday, and one hour on the next day is three Jewish days. That would be three in the Jewish mind. That's three days. Twenty six hours would be three days. So I think he gets not, in the tomb. Not just any, not just any twenty six hours, but the the last hour of one day. And then the twenty-four hours of a full day, and then the first thank hour you. of thank you. The, the last yes. day. That's a that's a good that's a good distinction. You can't say eleven a.m. Uh, right. today right. to one p.m. tomorrow counts as three days. Right, that is correct. So any piece of let me go back to what I was going to say. Any piece of one day, a full day, and then any piece of the next day. So he could have been in the tomb for twenty-six hours, as little as twenty-six hours. And actually been in there for three days. Ray said <laughs> he thinks Jesus was crucified, barely gets in the tomb before sundown, is in the tomb all of Shabbat, and does not wait till sunrise. He says, I think he's gone out of the tomb, you know, uh, probably what we would even call late Saturday night, like just an hour or two into Sunday, or the, the Jewish Sunday. And it, it, he could absolutely be right. That would be three Jewish days. But, I mean, that messes with our sunrise service image. So maybe Jesus was nice to us and he waited for the for the moments right before dawn. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's actually a footnote in, in our previous uh, passage from the last episode um, that kind of talks about this. Um, Exodus 12, 6 is where this comes from. And I, I think this is some reference to the Septuagint, but there's um, the idea is the, the Passover lamb is slaughtered the day before at twilight. Um, and it says that in the Greek, the phrase is between the two evenings. Um, but then by the time of Jesus, there are so many lambs that need to be slaughtered during this time. Like you cannot do all of this instantaneously at this twilight moment. So they redefined twilight. They redefined between the two evenings as as soon as the sun hits that high point in the sky and begins to go down, that is the first evening. And then the actual end of light is the second evening. And so they have the entire afternoon to do this. So it, you know, whether you think that it was exactly at three o'clock or whatever, or six o'clock, which, which one was it? Oh man, I, I want to say three. You cornered me without my notes, but I want to say three. The time of Jesus's death does not have to be down to the minute because because how they have redefined this between the two evenings as basically the entire afternoon. Except the ex, the actual Paschal sin offering is going to be a moment. Like he literally dies, and this is important for me. He dies as you hear the shofar in the background. The shofar is marking the official Levitical 
Paschal sacrifice. There is a sacrifice being offered for the holiday temple observance in the temple. And so he gives up, like it's almost eerie to consider. He breathes his last breath and you hear the shofar simultaneously going off. Mm, I see what you mean. Now, my your Paschal lamb, my Paschal lamb, yeah, that, that could be much more squishy, which is why you have a whole day of preparation. But that official one that's happening in the temple is announced with a shofar at the hour of sacrifice. And that that element just adds a really cool visual of what's happening as Jesus gives up his last breath on the cross. Yeah, it just doesn't talk about that in John, does it? No, I don't believe so. Pros and cons of harmonization. <laughs> yep, yep. Okay, well, that was really my question was just like, I, I wasn't sure if we had talked about the day of preparation before and what that entailed, because it's not really, the day of preparation is not like a, it's not like an official thing. It's just like, hey, there's all these things that we have to do for Passover and we need to really make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row. So we're going to have this day of preparation beforehand. Yep. And it is the day where you have to sacrifice that lamb. So you do have you do have a, an actual day that means something to them, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, okay. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, as you referenced earlier. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. That, by the way, is a, I should have said this about a verse ago, that, that's a, a reference to Deuteronomy. You're not allowed to leave those bodies hanging up past nightfall by the time Sabbath gets here. So, And, and again, I, John makes a distinction between chief priests, like the corrupt leaders that I can't imagine carrying a whole heck of a lot, and then the actual Jewish leaders, which are which are those that leadership that is around them and surrounds them. Now they they are trying to adhere to Torah. They do have to follow that, and so they need those bodies down. So they go ask Pilate to finish the deed, and so that they can still observe and adhere to Torah. Yes. Okay. Uh, but when they came to Jesus, this is the soldiers. When the soldiers came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. And there must have been somebody that talked about that. That's just a weird verse, isn't it? I'd never really noticed it and keyed in on it until preparation for this episode but that verse is like there's somebody who gives testimony to this and he saw it and he's you know interesting reference i've never really noticed before uh yeah the testimony part yeah and he must have been known that testimony must have been important and he must have been known to john's audience in asia and asia minor or something uh, whatever that must have been a topic of conversation about the blood and water which makes me think that there must be some big remez um some really big reason why that's important because that testimony is so important to John's record. But alas, I don't know. More things to learn. Um, well, the NET suggests that the water and blood may be a reference to 1 John 5, um, which I don't know if we've talked about when that would have been written versus when the gospel would have been written. Yeah, I never like to do that. But yeah, I mean, well, yeah. Not not necessarily a reference to First John 5, I should say. Just a connection. You can connect the ideas, yeah. Whether First John 5 is... I mean, First John 5 is clearly written after the fact. Right. <laughs> so First John 5 is talking about this moment in what it says. Sure. Um, because it talks about 
Um, there are three that testify spirit, water, and blood. And oh. so, Oh heck yeah, sure. I didn't think about that. The whole reference to testimony. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So, uh, whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. Fascinating. So, yeah, the whole whole element of testimony there and water and blood, which is weird. Yeah, that's fascinating. First uh, John 5, there you go. Same author, uh, right? Everyone agrees? Yeah, well, I mean, more or less. everybody definitely doesn't agree, <laughs> but we do, and uh, that's how I see it and how we presented it. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is a great example of why I think you see it. There's a, ver- there's a real consistency to the thought, the methodology, the language, the theology, between the books. And uh, if it's not the same author, most people have said there's a school, a, a Yohonian school, um, where his disciples are the ones that are writing these letters in his name. I don't think that's necessary. I think it's just John the whole way across. But if it's not, you still have enough consistency that they're like, this isn't just random different authors. These authors are connected. Right. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Oh, very interesting reference. I mean, John makes the connection, draws the connection to Zechariah 12. Now, I I could be making a bigger deal. I kind of titled this episode after this reference, but I could be making a bigger deal than is warranted. But a lot of people have talked about, like, from a... From a distance, a lot of scholarship has often talked about how anti-Semitic John's gospel is. Like, he's so anti-Jews, anti-Jews, anti-Jews. And it's part of the reason why we spent so much time saying, I don't think Jews is a good reference, a good translation of Eduai that we've talked about before. I think it should be Judean. I don't think he's making statements about just Jews in general or the Jewish people of his day. I think he's talking about a particular worldview that was antagonistic to the gospel and the movement of Jesus. But in order to make that case, one of the things I find so interesting here is John's reference to Zechariah 12, because Zechariah 12 is a portion of the prophecy where uh, it's talking about the deliverance of God's people, the deliverance of the Jewish people. God's going to come deliver them. He's going to come save them. And then in the midst of that, this passage that he remezes and quotes here. So Brent, would you read us the end of that? And I think we're even going to trail into the beginning of the 13th chapter. But give us that little piece of Zechariah 12 and listen to this as you hear it. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. All right. So this prophecy, this section of prophecy talking about God saving his people, the Jewish people, and in it, it kind of like culminates in this, I'm going to pour out on them a spirit of grace and supplication. So God's like, I'm going to come, I'm going to save them with with might and with triumph. I'm also going to um, 
I'm also going to pour out a spirit of compassion, of grace, of supplication, and they're going to and they're going to get it. They're going to mourn. They're going to look on the one they've pierced. And in Zechariah, it's not talking about Jesus primarily. It's just like Isaiah we talked about episodes ago. Zechariah's not talking about Jesus. Zechariah's talking about God says it's me. They've pierced me. They've struck and pierced me, but now they're going to realize it. And they're going to look on me, the one they have pierced, and they're going to mourn, and there's going to be restoration, and there's going to be a fountain of salvation, and there's going to be all of this. Now, why does John reference this passage here in John? And you could keep going, by the way. You could keep. You could just keep reading Zechariah 13. You could get to the whole shepherd are shepherds struck and the sheep are scattered, and think about the ramifications of that for the New Testament setting and context. And like you could just keep reading all the way to the end of Zechariah. But why does John reference this passage if he's not trying to say, like, if part of his gospel? is not an intentional invitation to his own Jewish brothers and sisters to say, this is your moment. This is what God's pouring out. He's looking for restoration. John can't be writing an anti-Semitic gospel and intentionally remez this prophecy because this prophecy speaks about God pouring out a spirit of grace and supplication on the Jewish people and them seeing it and getting it and coming back and responding with worship to God. So I think this is John's plea his invitation to recognize the moment you're in and say yes to this whole Jesus thing. Yeah. And just a point uh, to, to clarify that Zechariah is talking about God. Uh, there's some commentary um, on, let's see, it's, it's in verse 10 uh, where it says they will look to me or they will look on me. Uh, and the footnote says, because of the difficulty of the concept of the mortal piercing of God, the subject of this clause and the shift of pronouns between certain manuscripts, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, look, uh, you know, clearly some of these manuscripts change it because they were uncomfortable with the idea of, of piercing God. Um, but, but the original should be, you know, that's what, that's what this is talking about. So sure. Yep. Uh, back to John 19 then. Yes, I think so. Okay. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, and I was curious where Arimathea was. I was attempting to look into that. I do have a Wikipedia article on that. Uh, it seems to be near to Jerusalem, although there's a debate exactly where it is probably. Um, but you can check that out if you're interested. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus's body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. See, and what I love about this passage here is you, you see these two characters— I think about the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Like there, there was wheat among them, their weeds, like, and they, they, they weren't taking a stand and it was all in secret because they feared the Jewish leaders and, and rightfully so. Like I, I, I totally get it. I think I said in our chosen series commentary, like I completely relate with like Nicodemus is one of the characters I relate to the most in that whole story. Um, but here, and, but this moment, they they come out of hiding. They come out of 
it's his tomb. It's their spices. It's their linen. It's their, like, they all of a sudden show up and say, I, I'm in. Like, I, I've been watching. I've been listening. I thought he was right the whole time. I'm now here to, like, I just find this whole scene just incredibly moving because these are wealthy, influential people with privilege and power and a comfortable and they're like, no, I'm I'm letting that go so that I can be a part of a thing that I believe in more than my own experience of comfort. And I just find that to be instructive. I find it to be inspiring. I love this portion of the, this little part of the, the chapter. I love it. And of course, you know, this is a Greek, uh, Greek original. So the word for disciple there is methetes. But I do wonder what exactly that relationship was like. Um, for him to be like, what was his relationship with Jesus? Was he right? Uh, speaking of Joseph specifically, like Nicodemus came to him at night. Uh, I do wonder if there were other meetings with Nicodemus that are not recorded. Sure. Um, were there meetings with Joseph right. of Arimathea that were not recorded? Right. Um, I mean, John clearly knew of his existence and I, I just like, I don't know. Did he find out after the fact who he was? Was Joseph like, oh yeah, I've been I've been keeping tabs on Jesus this whole time, or was he around enough that John just knew, like, oh he he's a disciple of Jesus? So I don't know. I'll tell you what, I'm not a fiction reader and I'm not a fiction writer, but that would be a fantastic historical fiction novel. Is something that weaves the story of these two characters together, and uh, mm. and paints some beautiful. I don't know what the church tradition or church history has to say about them or who they were, or what their backstory was, but. Man, that could be a cool little series. That'd be that'd be a neat little ditty. Somebody do that. Somebody do that and send me a copy. <laughs> uh, and I did look into the seventy-five pounds thing. Uh, apparently, it says one hundred pounds, but a pound in Roman times was different than today, so they sure. translated that amount. But it doesn't seem like there's any kind of. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there is something to the idea of a hundred, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, didn't seem like there was any kind of reference that it was making there other than maybe that just the fact that it's a lot or I don't, maybe that's the normal amount. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Clearly care being taken here uh, though, either way. Yes. So at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there and I think the insinuation is that the tomb belongs to Joseph, but I don't know that I actually see that in the text, but I'm not sure. Is there any other reference to Joseph of Arimathea in the synoptics? He's in both Matthew and Mark. I think one of them says it's his tomb. Um, Joseph took the body of placed it in his own new tomb. Okay, so Matthew says that it is his tomb. Doesn't say that in Mark, so but it does say it in Matthew, and Matthew says it was his own tomb, which is a which is a huge deal, by the way, because I mean a a, a tomb that's a that's a huge piece of financial real estate, especially that close to the city, and if you take somebody and lay lay Jesus in your own new tomb, it now is no longer your family's tomb. You don't use it for the. I mean, you bought that for your whole extended family tree that would come after you. And now that tomb is now Jesus's tomb. I don't know if they could. I don't know if they could do both. And but I'm not sure you would. It's just a huge, huge, 
huge financial sacrifice um, to to dedicate that tomb and use it for. Now, of course, somebody's going to write me an email and be like, well, it wasn't occupied for very long, and it will be a very clever email, <laughs> and thank you uh, for making that point. Um, George DeYoung has a, a fantastic theory on this that I, I, was, I was doing scouting by myself in Israel one day, and I had yet to meet George DeYoung. He's a fellow guide, a student of Ray. I had never met him. I'd, I'd talked to him online, but never. I ran into him on accident in Israel one day, and it was the day that he was talking about tombs. And so I kind of followed him around for a little bit of their time just to hear him and meet him and spend some. And one of the lessons I got to hear was his take on Joseph and his tomb. And he said, his take was, I think Joseph plans to be buried here. And I was like, why would you think that? And and he says, because it's in the text. Can you think of a story, Brent, where somebody uh, ended up in a tomb that wasn't theirs and what happened? Because he says something about, I think George had said something about a reference. Does Joseph Arimathea say anything? In Matthew or Mark, he doesn't say anything, does he? Oh, boy. Let's see. Um, I don't think he does. I'm trying to remember how George made this connection. Um, no no direct quotations. Just says he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, but no, no actual words coming out of his mouth that are recorded. Man, George made a, George made a connection somehow to the idea of bones. And he wants his bones to be where Jesus's bones are. And he tied it to the story of, do you remember the story of the funeral procession that was carrying the body to a funeral and they drop the casket, they throw the casket, the body rolls into Elisha's tomb, touches his bones. And what happened to the body? Oh man. Uh, I don't remember. It sprang to life and ran ahead of the funeral procession. Oh yeah. Right. And so George DeYoung's take was Joseph wants to be buried in the same tomb because he's trying to say, if my bones touch his, he's such a great prophet, I may see and taste the resurrection. What he doesn't realize is, oh, there's going to be a resurrection, just not at all like what he foresees. And uh, I loved that teaching. I wish I would have had it recorded because it was phenomenal. I probably have it buried. I have a bunch of George's teachings somewhere. I just need to go. Uh, dig it out. But I, I loved that take. I loved the in-the-text nature of that. Might be a bridge too far. I don't know if I see that in the text or not. I'm sure George has done a whole bunch of work I just need to uncover. But nevertheless, I that came to mind as we were talking about Joseph of Arimathea and his his own brand new tomb. So there you go. Yeah, the details in John are just a little bit weird because it's like Joseph takes him, but then they're like, oh, it's almost the end of the day. And so we're just going to use this tomb that's right here. But I guess, I guess Joseph, I mean, if this is right outside the city, this would be a really expensive tomb, right? Like, because people want to be buried close to Jerusalem. Yeah, it would be a super expensive tomb. And, and I've never thought about if you, if you do try to harmonize these records, I wonder if they were in need of a tomb last minute. And Joseph says, here's one that's cut out. What does this cost? I'll buy it. That would be fascinating. Oh, that he didn't actually own it ahead of time. And I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. They if, chose it. Yeah, the text doesn't say either direction. But uh, if you're trying to harmonize the details and the way, like you said, the language almost suggests here that it's more of a an issue of convenience 
Matthew says that he owns it. I wonder if he, but it would be, it would be a massive, it'd be like just buying a house. It's a chunk of real estate. You're, you're buying a chunk of real, real estate for, to bury family and for generations. It's a, it's a huge investment. Yeah. Because without Matthew, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily Joseph's tomb. I mean, clearly they have to like, I mean, I don't know. Like, is there, <laughs> I don't know how this works. Cause like if you go into like a, a funeral parlor, they're going to have, or a, uh, maybe not a funeral parlor, but whatever the administrative building is at like a cemetery, they're going to have different types of headstones on display that you can buy. So is this just like, Oh, here's a row of, here's a row of tombs that we've cut out, but we haven't sold them yet. And Joseph says, well, I'll just buy that one. How about, yep. Could be. Yeah. I've never thought about reading it that way, but it absolutely could be. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think that's, uh, I think that's it for this episode. Yeah. Did we get all the way done? Not, I think we did. Not, not a, uh, not that much brighter of, uh, <laughs> of an ending to this episode. We still have one more episode to wait before, uh, before we have the, the glory. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Spoiler alert. Blow that spoiler horn. No, I'm just oh, kidding. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, normally I, I don't know. I, I think for most people, I, I'm, I'm really a purist, Marty. I try not to spoil anybody on anything, no matter when it's from, but I think I know what's 2000 year old spoiler. <laughs> uh, it's pretty good. Okay. Well, that'll do it for this episode. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me at EIBCB and you can find more details about the show at bamonstablishop.com. So thanks for joining us on the Baywatch Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.